All right. So, you know, we were just discussing and, and whatnot and, and it stumbled upon the issue of Samati. That um, Samati is a word that is generally wrongly translated. And I think that it happened because when the translators get started translating, they haven't read all the literature. Or another way of saying it is, is that they're trying to figure out not how to translate what they're translating, but what they are translating. And that there are places in the suttas to where uh, samati is actually defined. There's an actual set of definitions for it, but for some reason that wasn't being read by the guys who started doing the translations and so they picked up and translated it as concentration instead okay so in the suttas one of the examples is a yurt do you know what is a yurt no okay a yurt is the tents that they use in mongolia the it's a nomadic building that has one ridge pole and then um what they do is they put poles in the ground around and then they put one big ridge pole in the middle and then they'll put all of these lean tos uh, around it and basically what you could say is is that it's a tp on stilts but that but uh the uh the tp is also a very very good example of samati why? Because all of the poles of the samati uh, of the teepee are tied together at the top. There is a structural point where everything is tied together, giving tremendous strength. That if those poles weren't tied together, you wouldn't have a tent at all. They would fall apart. Right. So uh, think about uh, the easy way is to look at it as a as a tripod. Okay, any kind of tripod, those three legs have to come to a point and are tied together and connected together. That's the samati point. And what it what is used in so the word samati was a common word in uh, uh, the ancient Pali of the time of the Buddha. But this wasn't a Buddha thing. He used all the language and then redirected the definitions of them. Okay, so we we can call uh, in our language we would call it a gable or a ridge point. You know, the ridge pole or at the top of it. Um, we also have dome-shaped capitals, and the dome-shaped capital actually comes from the arch. You know, the Romans were really, really good at making arch, and there's one point in the arch that's that center point at the top, that that point holds everything together as well as helps distribute the weight, okay? So an arch, the top part of the arch is the samati point for the arch. And the, uh, the, the center dome of a, um, uh, Oh, like the Capitol buildings around the world, or maybe uh, um, uh, that, in fact, one of the uh, grandest things is there's one of the buildings that the ancient Romans did that they used heavy 
bricks as they were building up using lighter and lighter materials so that they could leave the dome part open. But the, the ridgepole part of it was still around the circle, but it let light in, okay? So this is the point we're talking about what makes a building strong so that just a pile of stones will stay together as opposed to them falling apart. The arch will just stay there, okay? So this is what we're talking about, is what gives the, the structure that brings everything together and brings something new. Like the teepee is just a set of poles and a bunch of um, skins until it's arranged correctly. Okay, so now we can take this whole concept and bring it to the mind. And talk about that when the mind is organized, when the mind is unified, that's the samadhi. And we can think of it from modern psychology or um, neurophysiology. When the adult, the parent, and the child are in unison with each other, when they are in full agreement with each other, that we're not a crowd on the inside, wanting this, one part of us wants this, another part wants that, the third part wants this. And we wind up being dissatisfied two out of three times, no matter what. <laughs> but if if we can uh, bring the mind to a point of samati, then that means that we're organized. Also, the word samati is used in uh, jhana, but the reason that but then the Western mind sees the word concentration and thinks that jhana has to do with concentration, but the real quality of jhana is, is that it's gathering the factors together. And when the, when the factors are gathered together, then that would be first jhana if you've got the right factors. And so if you look at the factors of first jhana, you'll see first off is that the mind has to be free from the hindrances. That's the number one. The number two thing then is, is by gladdening the mind, we bring on stuka, and then if we continue to do that, we bring on the positive, uh, the the feeling of uh, the winner's attitude, can do. So we have the pity, the sukha, and also with an energized mind that's full of investigation, we have the ability to apply the mind and sustain the mind. And those are your five jhana factors for the first jhana. It's free from hindrances, sukha, pity, applied and sustained thought. Now, what do we apply the mind to? And what do we sustain it on? We apply the mind to wholesome thoughts. We actually apply the mind to keeping this structure going and we sustain it by keeping it going. So the applied and sustained thought is actually kind of the, uh, if you think of a, a teepee with four ridge poles, you have a fifth ingredient and that fifth ingredient is rope. <laughs> okay, and we apply and sustain that rope around the other factors, and that's going to keep it in that samadhi place. It's going to, uh, so we think of the applying the mind is keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. So this is what we mean by samadhi that has nothing to do with concentration. Mm -hmm. like that you can have those five factors of samadhi uh, for the first jhana and still be able to move around, that you're not stuck. Then, in fact, when you have the samadhi of the first jhana, that's when you truly can move around 
comfortably and easily. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. That's a wonderful image. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Okay. Well, that image of the yurt is actually in the suttas. I didn't invent that. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but the guys who were translating the word sut uh, um, samati didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so they picked the best word that they could find, where in fact, oftentimes, concentration is exactly opposite of what samati is. But can't you say that sustaining and applying, the factors of sustaining and applying is very much like what you would say concentration is? Yes. That's probably why they chose the word concentration. But the word concentration has many, many different uses for it. And that often, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, when you tell a first grader to concentrate on her homework, more than likely what she will do is she will frown and she will scowl and she will <laughs> look like that. And she looks like she's concentrating, but she's not actually in a learning process. So we can actually think of, uh, in some cases, um, concentration is merely just working too hard. But if we use the word concentration the way that we're using it with samadhi, then yes, we can use it that way. You know the word concentration has many, many different uses. And that's the problem, is that if any people hear the word concentration referred to Buddhism, and everybody's got their own idea about what that means. Mm -hmm. so and then you get the drawing insight and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when we understand it correctly, then we can say, okay, in some cases we can use the word concentration to, to, de uh, to define samadhi. But mostly, we should stay with the collection of the factors together. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's one clear case where it's actually uh, quite opposite, and that's uh, my joke about frozen concentrated orange juice. No one drinks frozen concentrated orange juice. I'm, I've, I've, a few people try it from time to time, but that's not how you drink it. No, you want to take frozen concentrated orange juice and put the water back in it and make it samati so it can be drunk. You want to complete it, make it back whole again. So in many ways, we can think of concentration as removing ingredients. And the, the ingredients are removed for specific reasons or purposes, which may not be wholesome. But we're concentrating by uh, 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 lightening our load, I guess, would be a way of saying it. And sometimes when we lighten our load, uh, we're actually throwing out in essential ingredients. And sometimes when we're concentrating, we're actually adding a whole bunch of extra effort and extra work and a lot of other stuff to it that is not necessary, that samadhi is okay without that, that we've got the factors that we need collected together. There's, there's another way of thinking about that, and that is the issue of ignorance. We, each one of us, 
the two of us individually, neither one of us will ever possibly know everything. It's not possible. Uh, yeah. One thing, a lot of people are trying to keep secrets. Are you going to go find out everybody's secret? No, you can't do that. You may die trying, but you won't do it. Okay. So from this perspective, we have to know, well, what's enough? It's not that we're going to completely eradicate ignorance. It's just that we're going to get enough. And if you have the right stuff, you don't need everything. In other words, you uh, an example is you walk into grandpa's garage and he's got all kinds of tools in there. But all we really need is just a screwdriver. OK, so let's get the tools we need to do the job without thinking, oh, I've got to use it all. I've got to know it all. I've got to take it all in. And yet, for some reason, that's something that's happened with many students in the West is we think that we have to know everything. I've actually been criticized by that. I remember one of the history papers that I wrote. I got an A. He put a plus and then a minus after the plus. And then he wrote the note. Just answer the question. Don't tell me everything you know. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. I still am trying to learn that lesson. I still try to get it all in to, you know, give a complete story. And it's just not possible. An example of that would be Paticca Samupada. I don't think that Paticca Samupada can be fully investigated in one book or in one set of lectures. There's just too much to it. All right. Well, from this perspective, that means that instead of uh, eradicating doubt about all the stuff that we don't know, we need to only eradicate the doubt by finding the stuff that we actually need to know and then finishing with that. That more and more and more and more knowledge, I mean, that's what the PhD is all about. It's piled higher and deeper, you know. <laughs> and so we're we often are like that we just want to know more and more and more and more i think philosophy is one of the places where that's um, a big issue is that you've got to know the names of and the points of view of every philosopher who's ever written a book and gotten published you know otherwise you don't know nothing <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah a lot of but people, the, yeah. And yet all of that data doesn't necessarily help. Absolutely. This is where we have that connection back again with Samati, is that we don't want to cut down every young, thin tree in the forest to make a teepee, that just a few ridge poles will do. Just enough knowledge, just enough to get the job done. That's what we have to look at is ignorance. So the question then is what is enough? Well, enough so that we can be satisfied. That's the criteria. This, the enough is when I've got enough, I know it's enough because I'm satisfied with it. But I don't have to get it all. So, um, 
the whole idea of concentration is to try to get it all, trying to get it everything together, rather than pick and choose and get a few things. So that's the way of, of looking at it is, is that, yeah, ignorance is, is very much like, um, our, our human knowledge is very much like a, a smorgasbord. I'm walking into, let us say, a hotel that's got, you know, you pay the fat fee and here's all the big, big buffet. All right. You can't eat it all. But you can go and have fun and, and pick out a few things. So this is a way of, of uh, uh, understanding the whole quality of ignorance is that we're just not going to know everything. So let's start working on finding out what's worth knowing. Because if you find something that's worth knowing, then you don't need to know anything else. That's the whole point is, is that do you have enough so that you can be satisfied? Because Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, that's the whole teaching of the of the Buddha. And we know that Dukkha is being dissatisfied. And here we want, I'm dissatisfied with the knowledge that I get. So I'm getting knowledge and I want no knowledge and I want no knowledge. I want more, more and more and more knowledge. And I, uh, even though I'm getting more and more knowledge, I'm still not satisfied. When is it that we're going to get satisfied with the knowledge that we've got. That's the question. When? Because there's no end to the amount of knowledge that you can learn. But there is an end to suffering. That's the whole point. Is, is that more knowledge and more and more philosophy and more and more computer science and more and more music and more and more this, that, and the other thing. There's just no end to the more of it. But there is also an end to it in the sense that we can get enough. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, it's great. Um, Did you have a particular question about the uh, the article that you were talking about, about the philosopher talking about uh, the self? Um, not really. Um, I'm sorry. The people above me are having a bit of fun. <laughs> if you know what I mean, it's just an odd experience. Like, <laughs> um, oh, they're making noise, huh? Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. I'm not really with the philosopher. I mean, that that stuff is just like, you know, it's just philosophy, like. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I 100% take the view that it's like philosophy is like asking questions that just are not answerable and, you know, go on forever. And you cannot, like you're saying, you can always have more and more of this knowledge or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, there's no end to it. You know, I still enjoy it because I, I think it's fun, you know, and I think you can have fun with it. And Absolutely. But that, that, 
because you can have fun and enjoy it. That's what makes it enjoyable and fun. And a lot of philosophers start into it that way. But then they say, oh, I can have more fun if I know more. And then they get stuck into that, that I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. Reckon, rather than understanding there comes a point when you've got enough. Do you have enough to be happy? Do you have enough to be satisfied? And I don't think that the philosophers are really looking at that. That would be a really good question that you could begin to ask them is when is enough philosophy enough? <laughs> well, you know, again, we all like doing it, you know, so <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we could just stop, I suppose. <laughs> but I think everyone. Well, that, no, no, not, not necessarily stop. I mean, this breath is enough to keep you alive for a couple of minutes. Right. And then you need another breath. Okay, so in that regard, uh, we can uh, continue to play with it, continue to use it, but we don't have any need for it anymore. We're not looking for something because we've already found the answers to the questions that we needed to have answered. Mm -hmm. We haven't answered all of the questions, but we've answered enough questions. Yeah, totally. And then all the other ones are just toys. Right? Then then philosophy becomes a toy to play with. Totally. Which is what we would recommend anyway. Totally. Yeah. Um, I do think that within philosophy, there is the whole. Well, I don't know. Um, I did have another question um, about, I was watching a video that you did and you were talking about um, being goal oriented and how that mm -hmm. we shouldn't be goal oriented or just that it's not helpful to our well-being to be goal, or goal oriented. Um, and that, that, is, that is helpful for me, I think, um, because, you know, I get super wrapped up in certain you know, accomplishing things or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I think doing that, and I think you would agree, um, I think, you know, growing to have that attitude of like, I have to get an A on this or whatever, um, it can, it can pull you out of a lot worse situations, right? You know, like, there are worse things in the world that I mean, certainly, you can have a pretty miserable life just trying to get A's or whatever. But in general, I think a lot of people become happier when um, they become goal oriented in a certain to a certain extent, but it's something that can be pushed too far. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. I wouldn't say that I'm completely against all goals. Mm. But rather to say um, that goals need to be investigated. Mm rather than just having goals for because we're in the habit of having goals. Uh, and often 
uh, during the process, the goals will change. Mm. But if we get fixed on uh, wanting a particular goal and the evidence is leading us someplace else, then that's going to lead to dissatisfaction. Okay. But the problem with goals is, is that we wind up disappointed with the results of uh, trying to attain those goals and not being able to attain them. But if we're very careful with the choosing of our goals, then we can wind up, uh, let us say, manufacturing the success merely by choosing the right goal. So if we have, um, you can use various classes in university like that, but that's one of the things that I remember uh, as a very practical thing that I was doing when I was a student would be that I would sign up for a course thinking that that would be a good course and then uh, dropping out of the course and going getting another course because uh, the goals that the teacher was setting this in this course were not the goals that I wanted or whatever like that. Uh, I remember specifically that I was interested in taking a course in, in Chinese history. And when I found that the teacher gave all of this reading to do, I dropped the course. And um, uh, other courses like um, uh, in those days, everybody had to do a certain amount of English courses. Mm -hmm. Still, all right. And so most of the people get stuck in American literature or English literature or medieval literature or whatever, like that kind of stuff, because a lot of English is a lot of literature and I'm not much into that kind of stuff. But they also had courses on stage design, voice and diction, acting lessons, that kind of stuff. So I actually took my English credits and doing stuff that I thought was fun oriented, goal oriented, but it was a different kind of goal mm. that most people take the uh, the English language courses for the only reason is, is because they have to take the English language courses and this is what everybody is doing. Mm. So would you say that certain goals are better like there's not one set of goals that everyone should have, right? Right, well, no one, I mean, there's going to be a lot of arguments about that, about what are, what are the right goals to have. And the, really, if there is a, a goal, it should be a goal that's immediately attainable. Long-term goals are problematic because there's too many causes and effects along the way. And so if we're going to have a goal, then let's have really immediate goals, right? Let's take this next breath. <laughs> um, because a goal actually is, um, let us say generally it's the case, that a goal means that there is something that we want that we don't have. So just net being goal oriented right from the get go is dukkha. Mm -hmm. Unless it's immediately available. If your goal uh, is met immediately, then there's no dukkha in it. Mm -hmm. And so our long term goals often keep us disappointed, unhappy 
and wanting something to be different than it is, what is that? The goal we have in mind. Where many of them are not like that. Um, um, one of the examples that I have is uh, a goal of renewing the visas, renewing the, uh, we have to check in every 90 days. So there's a 90 day check-in as well as once a year visas. But that's just something to be done. At one time when it was a goal, it actually caused trouble. Oh no, what if I don't make it, right? The reality is, is that the, uh, the visa will be given out according to having all of the pieces of paper that you need. So all we need to do is just get the papers that we have, but that's a very easy goal to meet. You take your passport to the guy and you hand it to him and say, make a photocopy of every page on this passport, <laughs> you know? And, and so when we break the goals down, then they're a whole lot easier. If I have that great big goal, oh, I've got to go and get the, uh, the, uh, the visa renewed, then that's a big deal. But if I take it and break it down into just this part and just this part and just this part, and these are easy things to do, then I can go and get that visa without ever having any big goals. But again, you can think of it like that would be samadhi. Instead of concentrating on getting the goal solved, what we're actually doing is that our goals are now gathering the factors together and each factor is a goal on its own. So all of the goals are very small. So that's another way of looking at it. Great big goals are great big sufferings. <laughs> and little goals are easier to meet. Which goes again back to the, you've heard this, you probably, this is old. The KISS principle. Keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. That's... All right, so keep our goals simple rather than complex. So an example then would be the goal is to get a PhD in philosophy. That's a big goal. How about the little goal of just handing in this paper? Or maybe the littler goal would be just writing this paragraph on this paper. And so if we have one little goal after another little goal after another little goal, then we're in a state of satisfaction all along the way but if we've got some great big goal out there that we're struggling to get there's going to be dissatisfactions along the way because we want something that we can't have and it's not easy to get <laughs> that is so good <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, i mean that's just brilliant isn't it <laughs> it really is yeah <laughs> Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know. Yeah, like I had some conception of that before, but that's just a really good framing of it. Yeah. And uh, that like, especially if we look at something in the far future and think like, oh, we have all this stuff, you know, or whatever, and like that becomes a huge thing. But if we just concentrate on this moment, then it's like, well, I just have to deal with this moment and this moment. Mm -hmm. 
what are we doing right now? Let's do what we're doing right now well, rather than trying to figure out how this piece that I'm doing now is going to fit into that great mm -hmm. big thing that I actually want. Mm -hmm. But rather, no, let's do what we're doing here well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I also think of, uh, I heard that the there's like a samurai saying or something like some zen saying that's like uh live by opportunity not by design say that again live by opportunity not by design yes that's exactly it that's it right there that's beautiful that's a, a really excellent way of saying it right live by opportunity about what's happening in this moment not by some grand design or grand scheme of things that in fact this is something that comes out of the middle ages it's very much a part of western society that comes out of the notion the medieval notion of god's plan mm. that god's got a plan for everything well, if God's got a plan, I can have plans too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where all the disappointment, the fact is, is that God don't, God don't need a plan. <laughs> if he's that powerful, if he's that strong, then he doesn't need a plan. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, uh, we don't need to have these grand plans. Rather, just the enjoyment. This is something that I'm working with Kitty is to get her to enjoy doing her homework rather than she's got to do it. Oh. You just enjoy doing it. Are you having fun with this? Yeah, teach, it's like the other saying, like, you know, teach a man to fish or give a man a fish and he'll have a fish for a day versus like teach a man a fish and he'll be able to fish, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then we don't have to have the grand plan of him uh, fishing. <laughs> sure. Brother, all we need is this fish. Uh -huh. Right? And look, look how much planning sometimes goes into people going fishing. I want to go fishing. Well, here you are in the city and you've got no fishing equipment, so you got to go buy it and then you got to go traveling and all of this kind of stuff. All just with the idea of going fishing. Well, why don't instead of going fishing, we just go down to the corner pet store and buy a goldfish? That's <laughs> an easy thing to do. Why do we have to go across the country with all of this equipment just to go fishing? You see, that's the way that we can think of it is, is that we can find little goals that are easy to make and that we are successful on it, feel that success and enjoy that moment. Because the other goal, the other possibility is, is that I have a great big goal. I can't be satisfied right now because I don't have that big goal met. Mm -hmm. And then once you do, once you do meet the big goal, like say you get the PhD or something. Then I'll feel really, really spectacularly good for a very short time. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm in the habit of making the next goal, the next big goal. 
it's a simple thing, but it's crazy how how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. So you could talk about goals, then would be the whole quality about living in the present moment is to live with with present moment goals rather than long term goals because long term goals keep us dissatisfied, wanting something that we don't have. I guess that kind of changes how I think at the present moment then. Because um, I always think of it as just being like, you know, the razor thin, what is exactly right now, <laughs> you know? And I mean, it is that, but are you saying there's, uh, to be properly in the present or something, we need some level of future oriented thinking. Yes, there is some. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, an example in our society is that we wear clothing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the dogs, all they need is a tree or a fire hydrant or just any old thing that comes by and they're ready to do it. But humans, we have to have the goal of going and finding a toilet. Sure, sure. Right? So that's one of the goals. Uh, goal-oriented things right there. In fact, one of the things that I just uh, uh, mused upon is is that Tesla is putting uh, charging stations all over the place for people to charge their cars. And then they want to take a leak. They can't charge their car and leak. They have to go drive their car to the toilet. There's no toilet at the charging station. (laughs) But if Elon Musk puts a toilet at the charging stations, you see, the charging stations, they, they run by solar and the power and all of that kind of stuff, and it's self service. But a toilet has to be cleaned. Mm-hmm. If you put a toilet at the charging station, now you're going to have to hire staff. <laughs> Why? All because of that issue of humans having goal-oriented, that you can't do your business here. So, um, in in that respect, let's keep our goals very, very simple. Let's make sure that we can meet our goals so that we can live a happy, comfortable life rather than setting for ourselves goals that while we're not meeting them, we're miserable. Mm-hmm. So you can take that with your exams, too. Don't get too goal oriented about it. Just, you know, make goals kind of immediate. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's all about enjoying it, you know, because it's like Mm -hmm. um, I heard someone else talking about it. It's like, you know, this is all we've got, you know, like you said, there's no one else coming, you know, (laughs) there's nothing. (laughs) Life is not just going to be like, boom, you know, like, oh, (laughs) like, no, it's going to be this, you know, we're going to continue to have this mind and, you know, we're going to continue to have the same history, you know, and all this sort of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. So we either deal with it now or we don't, you know. That's right. Everything is in the immediate present or it's not really relevant to this immediate present. And some things need to be prepared for, but when the the preparation then, let us say that whatever the goal, the ultimate goal is, requires 16 items. 
well, let's not have the big goal. Let's just have one of those 16 items as a goal. And then another of those 16 items as a goal. And then the ne next one, oh, that could be broken down into three or four little goals. So let's go do that goal and do this goal and do that goal. Uh, and so this is a, a way of uh, dividing it up. Instead of having the eye on the grand picture, we can do that just a little bit to find out where the pieces are. But now we're going to focus our heart or our intentions on the little goals. Mm -hmm. uh, many expressions in English language like that, like uh, being. Uh, the term being penny wise and pound foolish seems to fit in there in in the sense that. We need to keep track of what the, the big goal is or the big picture. Otherwise, the little things that we're doing are irrelevant. OK, and so ultimately, the biggest goal that we should have, if there is one, is to spend this present moment happily as a big goal. But many people don't. They say, oh, my big goal is $100 million. Or maybe my big goal is uh, a colony on Mars. But a much better goal would be let's get this rocket going to keep with the little goals. And so uh, that way we'll spend much more time in a happy uh, state of mind that is successful. Oftentimes the goals get too much, too big, and then we have like in Aesop's favor, uh, fables with the, the fox and the grapes. Because I can't get the grapes, the grapes are no good anyway. And so this is a way of, uh, um, of thinking that oftentimes our goals wind up being great big disappointments. But if we have very little goals, then we can have those goals and meet them satisfactorily and have a good, happy life. Totally. Um, I think this really fits in uh, to another thing that, like, I've been wondering. Um, like, I, I, I do a lot of, I have routines, you know, I do the same typical things every day. Not, you know, the exact same things every day, but there's certain things that I like to do like every single day. Um, for whatever reason. Uh, like I copy out poetry every single day and I work on writing music every single day, right? So those are two things that I do. Um, and I noticed that when I was, whenever I would focus on copying out the poetry, I would be in a very peaceful state um, mm -hmm. and just like ex like completely in the present, you know, and just like, you know, I mean, if I'm doing it well, you know, not always, but just like, I mean, it's a very, it's a wonderful thing to do, you know, it's just nice and you're just there and it's, it's like you're saying, it's really simple, you know, and it's just like this, you know, each, it's just a little goal, like, I'm just going to write this G now, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's kind of. I'm understanding like why like calligraphy is such a big thing in something like Zen is because it's just you're just focusing on that one thing or whatever. So I don't know, kind of seem to realize that. 
versus like when I'm working on music or something, then then I'm concentrated on this big goal, like make a song, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that can very quickly, yeah, be a. Or, but actually, what happens is not write a melody or uh, write a bar. We are publishing a masterwork. Yeah, totally, totally. Right? <laughs> great big goals, great big grand design, rather than, no, let's just do a little melody. Let's just do that, something that we can do in a short period of time, because we can enjoy doing that. Yeah, so I don't know. That's I guess that's something that I'm going to have to work out, though, is like how to parse it out. It's a little yeah, well, you'll, you'll figure it out now that you have this new perspective that there's nothing really wrong with goals. Let's just not make goals that we can't meet. <laughs> totally. Let's just have little goals that we can make. And then we can do it right away. <laughs> then we can do it right away and have our satisfaction right away. Okay, you know, well, that's a couple of questions that we've had today. That's really good. Do you have any other questions? No, I'm, this is, yeah, it's, it's really, really nice. <laughs> we, we never really did talk much about the self in philosophy because Western philosophy really doesn't have that, that concept uh, so much. So um, it's interesting that when we talk about the self from uh, the philosophy point of view, really what we can do is just break it down into these constituent components. That that's what the Buddha had done to see that, uh, that in fact, that's the major teaching of the five aggregates. The five aggregates, the teaching of them, and in so many different suttas, one of my favorite is sutta number 22, where the tail or the last part of the sutta, the important part is, is that the five aggregates are taught because there is no self in any one of the aggregates. If there is no thought, no self in any one of the aggregates, then where does the self come from? It comes from the combination of these uh, aggregates in a certain arrangement. That's the whole point is, is that selfishness is a is almost a cause and effect event that has ignorance built into it in the sense of not knowing how we feel. And because we don't know how we feel, we wind up grasping and clinging and wanting and going off into the dukkha. But the original body itself has no self there. The body, the feelings themselves have no self there. The consciousness, our ability to know there's no self there, nor is there any real self in all of the past history and everything that I've collected together, nor is it the way that I interpret the present moment of the, uh, con the consciousness plus all of the past that I put there to it. And so even the creation of uh, understanding in the moment has no self to it is when we don't like our own conjuring that where the self arises it arises in order to be the one who does the clinging 
when there is any clinging that happens. When the clinging happens, there's a self that arises. Okay, so how can we put that in the context of uh, the philosophy? To talk about it, that there is a self, but the self arises through conditions, that it's not inherent within the body, the feelings, the consciousness, perception, our memory systems, all of that kind of stuff. Does, there's no self in there that, that the selfishness is the result of the outcome of ignorant feelings. And when our feelings are wise feelings, that means that we can feel the way that we want to feel. So the self comes in when we have a great big goal that we can't meet. Oh, poor me, I can't meet my goal. But if I say, wait a minute, let's not deal with a great big goal. Let's deal with a goal that I can meet and feel good about right now. And now there is no suffering in that large goal. So that may be useful in you uh, working with philosophers who are talking about the self, because the self is actually the result of ignorant behavior. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, so, you know, um, there's, there is a philosopher, um, do you know who David Hume is by any chance? David Hume, yes, he's yeah. quite famous. Totally, he's very famous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they think that his conception of the self was influenced by the Buddhist conception um, because they think around the, the time that he was writing was really when um, Buddhist ideas uh, came to get more of a footing within Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, because he does have the idea that there, that the self, that there is no, you know, it's hard to say like what the self is now that I have this other picture of it. Um, but he, his idea is that there's no, all there is is just a bundle of representations. It's just continual perceptions. There's nothing like um, that. There's not, I mean, it's, you know, you'd compare it, to, I guess the, the prototypical example um, is like someone like Descartes who thinks that, you know, that the self is an independent substance that, mm -hmm. that persists after, you know, <laughs> all that. I know. Uh, have you heard my joke on that? I don't think so. Maybe. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, oh. which is making a logical fallacy in there. That he correctly, he would say, I think, therefore I think I am. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, and um, so, Dake, I mean, Hume was like, um, well, it doesn't seem like we have, that just doesn't seem like something we could have knowledge of. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like, what proof do we have of this um, individual substance? I don't know. I'm not super familiar with Hume's uh, philosophy on it, but it's, you know, it's it's the same thing that the, uh, the Buddhists might say in, in terms of like, it's just continual representations. All you're getting is your own subjectivity. You're never getting this objective knowledge of, you know, there is this self or whatever, you know, you're just mm -hmm. continually getting 
subjective representations. Well, that's an interesting point. Objective means that there's an object there. That's the whole point. Is there a self that is an object? Because if it's an object, now you can bring the, um, uh, the physicist in and they can tear that all apart. Whatever the self is, it cannot be an object because an object has E equals MC square in there, <laughs> and it's got to have some sort of mass involved. If it's got mass to it, then see, the, the point about the soul with, within the context of the common machine or within the context of God uh, can be seen, for instance, with Nagasaki or Hiroshima or uh, Hiroshima, excuse me, or the um, even a bus going off the cliff and all 50 passengers on that bus die at the same instant. They all just crash and they're dead now. Okay, how is God and the common machine going to sort who's who out so that they can send one soul to heaven and one soul to hell? They've got to have some way of discriminating that. They've got the way of being able to tell. Well, each individual is unique. That means that each individual soul has to be sufficiently sufficiently complicated enough to be distinguishable from other souls. Well, if there's 7 billion people on the planet, that means that we're looking at maybe a 9 or a 10 or maybe a 20-digit number that's got to be somehow scored into this soul somewhere. And when you look at it from that perspective, you say, wait a minute, it can't be objective. It can't be an object. That it's got to be magical. So the reality of it is, is that physics is just proven, you know, just straight up that there is no such thing as a soul the way that the stories are told about it. Because there's no object there that can, can meet the criteria that they, that they have set up for it. But the worst of it is, is that then the common machine or God himself has to remember all the crap that you've done, (laughs) put it through an AI algorithm to figure out what the balance is so he'll know whether to make you a goat or a donkey next life. (laughs) And that's where it gets really ridiculous. So we can come back to the point of saying, okay, we now have got to the point that a soul or a self is not an object. It's a subject. Right. It's a subjective thing. It cannot be an objective thing. It's a subjective thing. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm pretty sure, um, you know, it's difficult when we use the word subject because I think Descartes would use the word subject and self interchangeably. So who am I as or what am I as a subject is the same thing as saying what am I as a self. I think. So that's exactly right. That's what the whole point of the word subject means is who's the subject of this, you know, where, who is the self that mm-hmm. is the subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not an object. If it's not a, if it's not an object, it's a subject. That means it's merely, uh, the, let's call it the focus of attention. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing there. That all we do have are the objects that are surrounded around the subject. But the subject itself doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, 
And let me say, like, I, I totally, like, I'm 100% on board with, like, all Buddhist no self. I mean, it's, I don't know, to me, it's it's just self-evidently true. Um, <laughs> self-evidently, I got that. <laughs> like, you know, what would it be or whatever, you know. But I think there is, you know, um, so this guy, Immanuel Kant, he came up with a bit of an interesting uh, uh, description of, you know, what it is to be a subject or whatever, where he, you know, he's a philosopher who says God cannot be known. He, you know, his whole thing was like, okay, because, you know, Hume went so so far because he was like, everything's subjective representations, but he went as far to say, like, that means we can't even be sure of mathematical knowledge. We can't even be sure that two plus two equals four. And Kant thought... Often it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, just ask any Republican, they'll guarantee <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly correct. Two plus two does not always equal four. Right. So, I mean, you know, we could we could talk about mathematical knowledge and, you know, or like the internal angles of a triangle summing to 180 degrees, something like that. You know, that seems like something that we know um, mathematically. So, you know, you can stay on the Hume side. And I think, you know, it's it's a it's a very defensible side. Um, um, but I think there is something that's saying like, it, it kind of does feel like we do know that something like two plus two equals four. You know, that's that seems like it's useful enough. And we're all satisfied so long as it does. But sometimes it doesn't work that way. And that's why it takes a further investigation. And to recognize that two all doesn't always add up. Two plus two does not always add up to four. Um, possibly the example that I can think of is, is that you've got four apples, but one's a great big one and one's a really little one. Mm -hmm. Right? So the, uh, the two plus two equals four, there may be four apples because there's four integers, mm -hmm. but there's different ways of measuring those apples. No, that's a super great point. Um, that, yeah. That right. So the the point then at, at that level is is that the word integer is actually a human conception, mm -hmm. just like a real number is a human conception. Mm -hmm. It just we have been conceiving it for so many centuries that we've got a pretty good idea of how uh, the physical reality actually operates. But it doesn't always operate the way that we think it does. Totally. Um, the things, things are all, all, all over the place. And that, um, that, that perspective that we know for sure is just going to, that's just, you know, setting us up for more dukkha. That we're not all that that's what the Buddha continues to talk about in the sense that it needs to be reinvestigated and reinvestigated and reinvestigated. One of the examples of that two plus two equals four is that um, Einstein, uh, with his general theory of relativity, he predicted that stars, the light from a star would bend around the sun 
and that he wanted to find a an eclipse so that they could prove that the stars that you could see them but the reality is is that they were actually behind the sun but the sun bent the light so that it appears that the light is there okay the point that's really funny is is that i've been um associated with at least one fairly famous astronomer and that uh actually more than one because of uh i was in the houston astronomy club for a while uh and one of the things that's really interesting is is that every eclipse that happens especially those that are happening at night every eclipse that happens the uh the astronomers are out there to reprove to himself that light does bend around the sun and can be seen in an eclipse i mean that's one thing that they prove over and over and over and over again and every new physicist that graduates from university when he gets his first telescope he's going to put it in the back of his pickup truck and go to the nearest uh, eclipse so that he can prove that thing again that's one of the things that uh, that that is like that that we keep having to prove it over and over and over again because it seems kind of startling that that that, that would be the case and yet it's true and so we keep having to prove it over and over again well we need to do that also with our own minds we have to keep looking and keep looking and keep looking and keep evaluating and keep adding up does two plus two equal four this time even though we kind of know that it will we got to do it again we got to prove to ourselves that two and two is four when we assume that we know that's when danger will come So uh, an example of that is you, uh, you're late at night, you're in the bed, you wake up, you got to go to the toilet. You don't want to turn the lights on to disturb anyone else because you know your way to the bathroom. And then on the way to the bathroom, you stub your toe. Now, did you stub your toe? Why did you stub your toe? Was that out of ignorance or was that out of delusion? If it was out of ignorance, we would have known that we didn't know where everything was and we'd have turned the light on. That would be wise ignorance. But we were deluded to think that we knew our way to the bathroom. We knew where all the furniture was. We knew how to get to the bathroom in the dark and we stubbed our toe because of delusion. Why? We didn't check again to make sure that we knew the way to the, the, we didn't turn the lights on. We didn't do an investigation. We just assumed that we knew our way to the bathroom. So maybe two plus two is a little bit far-fetched, but that's the whole point that we need to keep checking and keep investigating because things keep changing. Yeah, my professor made a funny point where he said like, It'd be a pretty mean practice to teach a child how to count by using bubbles. You know, like, look at that bubble, plus that one. Oh, geez, um, no, these ones, you know, but they're all, you know, they're popping and then coming together. Right, things are popping in and out, and how can you count bubbles, right? Two, yeah, two plus two bubbles, does that always eat the four <laughs> bubbles? No, they've all popped. <laughs> exactly, so it's like, you know, they're, that, that sort of stuff. Um, but Kant did have an interesting thing where he tried to 
he tried to say that like, okay, so we don't have, you know, access to an objective reality outside of ourselves because, you know, all we have are, is our subjective representations that we have inside of us. But he thought that um, we can still know facts of, of, of objective truth by analyzing our minds themselves and analyzing the conditions of our minds themselves. So he thought that something like um, triangles all having internal angles summing to 180 degrees, we can't know that as an objective fact about the universe, but that's something that we can know about our particular form of sensing space, and our particular form of having knowledge of space. Ah, it's but what if you took a triangle, a regular triangle, and then take that triangle this size and put it onto a basketball on the surface of the basketball so that the um, um, won't be won't be too long. You can. Oh, OK. Hang on, I got a something's happened. No problem, no problem. Hang on a second. Okay, I'm back. No, yeah, for sure. Um, that's the whole issue of non-Euclidean geometry, which didn't exist when Kant was alive. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Is is that uh, things uh, things get bent? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, you can take I, you know, you can take it all with a grain of salt. But basically, going that's the general method is to ground the objective in our own mental conditions or whatever and saying like well we can know certain objective facts by just our by looking at our minds themselves not necessarily the outside world you know like arguably you could know like Descartes was talking about you can know as in well I guess this is complicated can do you think you know as an objective fact that you exist you know <laughs> That's the whole back to that original point. The answer to that is, is that that kind of knowledge I don't need to know. Uh -huh. That's that's an irrelevant question. And that you can you can think of it from the perspective of the matrix or do we live in a simulation? You know, people and uh, even philosophers will will be concerned about that. The answer is, is that that's an irrelevant question. It doesn't I matter. No, I totally does agree. Does God exist or not? That's an irrelevant question. It doesn't matter. Does rebirth exist? The answer to that is that's an irrelevant thing. Doesn't matter. What matters is how we're feeling and what's happening with us in this present moment. That's what matters. Right. Um, but anyway, so he his <laughs> uh, like working of the subject um is damn it's really complicated um, but it's basically like um you know all the representations that we have are our representations right all of the perceptions that we have are our representations because we can't have like i can't have your representations i can't have your perceptions because even if there was like some machine in my mind that was like you know making it so that i see what you see 
that sing would still be my own sing. I'd still be having, it'd still be my representations, right? So right. he's okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, in, in the Buddhist teaching, that is called the salyatana, mm -hmm. that internal representation. Mm -hmm. And uh, we could also talk about it in the sense of perception. And you used the word perception as a noun, rather than, uh, and, and using the salyatana and the word perception in the same way or they're, they're the same thing another way of looking at it is that perception is the process that brings up the uh that which was perceived or that which is conceived so we perceive or we have perception which is a process of gathering together the components to create our internal representation mm -hmm. And that is fleeting. It's very fleeting. Hard to measure. And and no two people will have it. You can have a whole stadium full of people watching the same performance. And at any particular instant, you're going to have a, a wide variety of uh, internal representations. Some are going to be looking at the speakers. Some are going to be looking at each other. Some are going to be looking at the stage. So there's all kinds of that kind of stuff. The consciousness is going to be radically different in all kinds of cases. But even if the even if the consciousness were exactly the same and they were all looking at just the singer, still what all of this vast majority of people are going to come up with is not going to be the same. They're not all going to have the same perception about it. Some are going to like his mustache. Others are going to think that he's too handsome. Others, you know, it's just <laughs> all kinds of perceptions that are going to be there. But the object was the same. Mm. And, the, that, you know, you could even ask, like, do they even see these colors the same way? You know, right. Oh, that's even a, that's a question. Do the greens that I see the same green that you see? Or when I use the word green, do you even see the word the green that I see when I use the word green? You may see another green. And we're not talking about the difference between forest and Kelly and lime. We're talking about chartreuse <laughs> or red or blue. But in fact, in some languages, red, excuse me, blue and green are the same word. That's true in Pali that uh they they would translate uh the 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 blue casino is blue casino it's not blue it's green <laughs> all right but go back to the original point do the colors that i see and call green are those the same colors that you have that you're calling green or are you calling another color green mm -hmm. the Let's, answer to that is is that's irrelevant we mm -hmm. don't care I mean, yeah, what we care about is that we can both agree that that particular bush or that particular tree is green. Yeah, even though uh, the rods and cones of each individual eyes and uh, as well as the perception about it may be different. I actually, yeah, I talk an example of that is uh, how does a child choose his favorite color? That's a very, very childlike kind of thing, you know. Who chooses? To, why do some kids have some favorite? Some kids really like yellow. Some really like blue. I happen to be a green guy myself. <laughs> why is it that we choose certain colors as a favorite color? 
just chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We just don't know. Yeah. The, and the answer to that is, it's still relevant. Those things are really irrelevant. So I would go so far then as to say, kind of in a happy, joking way, that a lot of philosophy is irrelevant. Asking questions that don't have answers is an irrelevant question. Totally. Yeah, but, but they love it anyway. I mean, that's like a favorite color. You know, why do you have it? Why do you want to ask questions that have no answers? Well, I get a big kick out of that. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. Um, my 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 like grader slash instructor. So he's not the professor, but like he works with them or whatever. He was talking about like how the humanities like are being pretty cut or whatever you know, from universities, especially over the pandemic or whatever, especially philosophy. And, you know, he was saying, like, <laughs> we can't really justify what we do, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know who said something along those lines. It's like, well, can you justify what you're doing? It's like, no, but <laughs> we can still. Well, ask yes, you can. It depends upon your criteria again for sure. the justification. Sure, sure. I would go so far as to say that the value of philosophy is the same today that it was 300 years ago when it was the only thing that was studied in university. And that was because university educations in those days was done because it was an enjoyable thing to do. It was fun to go learn. That part of the university education years and years ago was that you had to travel. Americans, in order to get their PhD in, in the United States University, had to go to another university in Europe for some reason or another. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, we could then come back to the present day. Uh, well, what's the value of philosophy? Well, have your universities changed to the point that the only thing that they're there for is to teach you how to make money? That's it. <laughs> Ah, if well, much of your education is not going to be to make money. In fact, the better parts of your education is to going to teach you how to be happy not making money. That <laughs> yeah. in fact, the reason why people are making money is because they think it's going to make them happy, and it doesn't. So let's let us go then back and turn that back around and says, why don't all you engineers and mathematicians and well, wait a minute, math is different. The engineers, though, they can just go tinker. They don't need to go to university. <laughs> the English majors, they don't need to go to university. They just need to go to a library. Right. I think there's, you know. You can definitely say like there. I mean, you know, we, we can all say we can all just like read philosophy in our rooms or whatever. But there is something very, very, very valuable. Um, I think the pandemic has shown me this. You know, about being in a room of people. We're all studying philosophy. We're all working together. There's someone who's been studying it for like a long time. Like, it, you know, it's like brainwaves type thing. You know, you get in mm -hmm. in sync with everyone and precisely. you're all working together. Precisely, exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and that that's part of the value of the Sangha. Mm -hmm. That what you're talking about is actually uh, the philosopher's version of the Buddhist Sangha. Totally, yeah. That, think, yeah. yeah. And that uh, there's great value in doing that. But as we were 
pointing out that the biggest problem with universities is that they've changed their uh, reason for existence. Mm -hmm. The original reason for existence was knowledge and learning as a joy. Now it's knowledge and learning so that you can make money. And I think that that transition took a long time. That in the 1960s, it had already started to change, maybe and even before that. Uh, but over many, many centuries, and there's the, ans the answer to it is, is when somebody says, well, why even bother to have philosophy in a university? The answer is, why have anything but philosophy in the university? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the true question. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Um, you know, I definitely think that, like, it's, you know, it's samsara, right? And that it's, mm -hmm. you know, it'll be like this and then it won't be, and then it'll be like this and then it won't be, you know? So I think these things come in phases. Uh, we're just happen to be on the upswing of <laughs> a bit of greed, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know, this has been a delightful conversation. I've enjoyed it. I uh, hope that we've gotten some, some value out of this. The real thing is that can you enjoy having little gold? Yeah. It's pretty damn enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you again later. Okay. Thanks for calling. This has thank been great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I really always appreciate it.